This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 196 of The Bugle, the official podcast of the London 2012 Olympics. <laughs> Hang on, did we ever actually sign that deal? We didn't? What? Does that mean I'm not lighting the Olympic flame at the opening ceremony, and I don't get to piggyback on Usain Bolt during the 200 metres in an exclusive live Bugle commentary? Oh, balls. Balls. Never mind, they'll be back in London in another 64 years. I'm Andy Zaltzman, captain of the British Olympic water polo team. What are you looking at me like that for? Not that as well. Never delegate, people. I'm live in London 2012 and joining me from New York City. It's a place, three words, first words, one syllable, sounds like... Oh, no, hang on, I've already told you the answer. Uh, it's the hipster quipster, <laughs> John Oliver. <laughs> Hello, Andy. Hello, buglers. Andy, New York is, to put it mildly... A city of lunatics. Uh, I believe that was the official state motto until they decided that calling it the Empire State might have less tourists cowering in fear in their hotel rooms. But it doesn't change the fact that this city is full of crazy people. That's a well-established fact. I believe that the Statue of Liberty has engraved on its base, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free, and also give me your batshit nutcases, because I've got a feeling that this city's going to be awesome one day. Now... My walk to work at times can feel like a walk through David Lynch's imagination. <laughs> but there was, there was one snippet of conversation I overheard this week that was particularly wonderful. An extremely drunk man. And this is, this is a very drunk man at 8.30 in the morning, Andy. That's a special kind of drunk. Was being held up against the wall by a police officer. And there was clearly a loud exchange going on back and forth between them. And as I walked past them, I distinctly heard the drunk man blurt out, Well... I beg to differ. <laughs> and, and I don't know what they were talking about, but in that moment, it really felt like the drunk man had won that argument. Because <laughs> if you could be that drunk that early and still be that articulate, I think you should be allowed to go on your way in peace. It appears we're at an ideological impasse, Ossifer. So I shall merely say good day to you, sir. I said good day! Seizing the moral high ground before vomiting up the side of a tour bus. <laughs> and the, the point is... When Billy Joel wrote, I'm in a New York state of mind, what he actually meant was, I think I'm about to take a shit on a subway car. <laughs> <laughs> yep, play it backwards, you'll see exactly what John means. <laughs> so as always, a section of the Bugle is going straight in the bin this week, a cynicism section to help guide you through the rest of 2012, including the Olympics, glorified egg and spoon race, Jubilee, Tea Party for Simpletons, and American election, Champastiche of democracy largely decided in the early 19th century. Oh, no, hang on, I've got that mixed up with the realism section. <laughs> or was that comment itself part of the cynicism section? <laughs> Don't know, but it was rubbish anyway. What about that comment? Hang on, anyway. Bugle 196. Now, more bugles, John, than plagues that God had lined up for the Egyptians in the Old Testament. Only got as far as ten. Uh, he had some absolute doozies lined up, including the plague of slightly undercooked peanuts. And uh, that's the end of the intro. <laughs> <laughs> So I just realised I didn't really have an end to that bit. Big finish, Andy. Big finish. Big finish. Like the women's javelin competition of the 1983 World Athletics Championship. A, 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 a won by a large Finnish lady with the final oh, throw at dear, the finish oh, of the competition. That, that worked on two levels. OK, stop, Andy. Let's get this bugle started. <laughs> Bugle 196. 
story this week. Obama is killing stop, it right stop, now. Stop, John. I'm, I'm going to have to stop you there. There is an even more important story than that because last Saturday, Harlequins became rugby champions oh, no. of England. Oh, no. That would be the greatest day in the history of this nation. Uh-huh. At least since the Germans admitted we had them pinned in checkmate in 1945. Maybe even the greatest day since little William Shakespeare first picked up a pencil and said, Mummy, what the f*** is this? As the multi pastel shaded heroes claim their glorious birthright on the holy sword of Twickenham with a display of rugby that even Jesus at his best would have struggled to match. And uh, it sent this half of the bugle noisily berserk and made his children say, what's happened to daddy? And I also think John has sent a message to the world that all is not lost as the joyous scenes were beamed around the world to a global TV audience estimated between 700 billion and uh, 1 trillion people. Uh, warring factions in the world's leading trouble spots laid down their arms, embraced and said Bob Dylan was right. You'll not see nothing like the mighty Quins and around <laughs> the Middle East. The sound of gunfire was replaced with the sound of rugby commentary as rival sides jointly realise that anything is possible if you put your mind to it and have a productive academy system topped off with a front rack form at New Zealand fly half. That's basically a quarterback for our American listeners. So that was it, John. Harlequins, the team described by the former American president Abraham Lincoln as the last best hope of Earth, delivered a message of universal redemption. Through a ceaseless communal striving for perfection, a message which surely now supersedes the teachings of the retired Messiah Jesus, the pro-celebrity empire smasher Mahatma Gandhi, and the Nobel award-winning philosopher Richie Benno, and set an example that will truly save this planet from oblivion, or worse, helped admittedly by a couple of questionable refereeing decisions. Thanks be to the Quins. Amen. Sorry, John, you were uh, you were saying... <laughs> Is is that Addy system now, Andy? I believe. Or is that likely to bubble up again later? I believe so. I believe that's <laughs> that's done. What a day, though, John. Rugby was the winner, Andy. <laughs> Rugby and the Quins. <laughs> Top story this week. Obama is killing it right now. And by it, I mean people. Obama <laughs> is killing people right now. And he emerged this week that President Obama personally oversees a kill list of insurgents who could be taken out with drone strikes if the opportunity arises. And look, we've all got a kill list, Andy. Married couples often each draw up a list of the names of five people that they'd love to murder if they get the opportunity without the other partner getting angry or turning them into the police. (laughs) It's the backbone of a healthy marriage. You're allowed to kill Jessica Simpson if I'm allowed to kill Tom Brady. <laughs> okay, deal. <laughs> now, the, the fact the fact that the president that has a little snippet list. from uh, John's speech at his own wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted there was just more of the contractual terms that needed to be going over before that final bullet was played. Uh, <laughs> The the fact that the president has this list isn't as surprising as the details that come with it. The New York Times reported that there is a secret nominations process to designate (laughs) terrorists for kill or capture by drones during high-level discussions. And first, let's be clear, kill or capture. Now, you might think, kill or capture? How the f*** does that work? How do you capture an insurgent with an unmanned drone thousands of feet up in the sky? Well, what happens is this. The belly of the drone opens up and a fairground grabber comes out (laughs) and reaches down to try and scoop up the insurgents in its claw. Unfortunately, the insurgents have now got wise to this and they've been covering themselves in butter so that they just slip out of the claw just as it's tantalisingly close to lifting them off the ground. The US military usually tries a few times before getting frustrated and just launching hellfire missiles at those pesky buttering insurgents instead. It's a 
do, do they not also have some magnetic ones as well that, that just try and hope that the insurgents are wearing 19th century style yep. German helmets? <laughs> That's right. That's it. They've, the point is they've exhausted all the options <laughs> before just raining the pain down upon them. And this system really makes everything a lot easier because not only are you killing people with an almost chilling video game type ease, but you're also managing to reduce the figures of taking prisoners to Guantanamo, as you're not taking any prisoners at all. Only one prisoner has been taken into American custody under President Obama. The rest have been very conveniently (laughs) vaporised. And apparently the president has insisted on approving every new name on the kill list, pouring over the terrorist suspect's biographies on what one official called the baseball cards of an unconventional war. And they really are baseball cards, Andy. I've got a few of them here. Um, They have a picture of the terrorist on the front and some of their statistics on the back. So here's one. This is Abdullah Rafiq. Uh, It says it's his rookie year in the Global Jihad. His numbers are pretty good, Andy. Um, He has a hate-the-West percentage of 84%. That's very promising. Uh, He's launched five ambushes on international forces. Two of them have been successful. But believe me, batting anything over 300 in that category could be Hall of Fame numbers. Um, Here's a little personal information about him, too. Uh, He likes dinner with friends, long mountain walks, and the song I'm Sexy and I Know It by LMFAO. What is it about that song? Andy, everyone seems to like it. <laughs> well, this, this system has been used ever since, uh, of course, the FBI bumped off Babe Ruth uh, in the uh, late 1940s. And on the current set of cards, you've got Ayman al-Zawahiri, the uh, al-Qaeda uh, head honcho at the moment, Osama bin Laden, I knew it was all a hoax, and Derek Jeter, which is a possible <laughs> logistical mix-up, but possibly not. I guess what we will have to wait and see for history to be the judge on that. But it has to be said, John, that America does have a pretty checkered record of assassinations that makes you think mm-hmm. this baseball card system is potentially risky. Of course, it has succeeded with uh, Osama bin Laden, John F. Kennedy, Abraham Lincoln, Che Guevara, Shergar, Mother Teresa, Lenny Bruce, Buddy Holly and <laughs> Jesus. But mm-hmm. failed with Fidel Castro, Colonel Gaddafi for a long time at least, Kim Kardashian, Jesus, second time around, Barry Bonds, the Queen Mother, Bill O'Reilly, Rick Moranis, Mikhail Gorbachev and E.T. So it's you know hit and miss. At best. <laughs> the, the kill list must carry some real sway in the terrorism world, though, Andy. It's like a Forbes list of f***wits, <laughs> a who's who of huge arseholes. If you're not on that list, you're nobody, Andy. And yet, any terrorist who is considered but doesn't make the kill list should not feel too bad about it. It is an honour just to be nominated. And they should know that they are still monstrous dickbags, whatever that panel says. Besides, those awards are always political, Andy. So often it's who you know, not what you've done. But also, you know, it's not all about awards, is it? They should be, they should be being dickbags just for the sake of being dickbags. Yes, you know, that's Awards right. and places on these lists, they're just a little bonus. Uh, there's only one thing that can make this secret presidential kill list more chilling, Andy, and that's if it was actually a secret presidential f**k, marry, kill list, along the rules of the f**k, marry, kill game, where you have three names and those three actions, and you have to decide who gets what. Uh, one of Obama's lists had the names Bin Laden, Newt Gingrich and Silvio Berlusconi on it. It looks like he chose to kill Bin Laden. He probably had sex with Silvio Berlusconi, <laughs> which would put him in a group that includes 64% of the world's population, which only leaves one thing. And that is that we might be about to have a new Mrs. Gingrich on our hands in the future. (laughs) Oh, President Obama, you're about to become the least happy woman in the world. (laughs) There's also been controversy that Obama has uh, embraced uh, a method of counting civilian casualties that counts all military-age males in the strike zone as combatants. (laughs) 
unless mm-hmm. there is explicit intelligence proving them innocent posthumously. <laughs> well, that seems yeah. to be the key word in that sentence, John. Shoot first, yeah. deflect questions later. In the old traditions of US justice, no smoke without fire. And of course, let's not forget a posthumous exoneration is very much more satisfying than an exoneration granted when you're alive. You can be even more smug about it. And incidentally, for those of you not familiar with it, posthumous is a Greek word for main course. <coughs> Thank you. It, it is some. Uh, Thank you very it is much. Some pretty, it's a bit pretty I'm impressive. <laughs> that it is some pretty impressive semantic witchcraft that the administration have been doing. It's it, by effectively counting these uh, all these males as a competence. It's it's essentially a cup and ball morality game. Where's the innocent civilian? Is it under this cup? No, there's nothing there. Better luck next time. <laughs> Their argument seems to be that Al-Qaeda is generally a paranoid organisation who don't like to be around strangers. So if you're around someone who's up to no good, you're probably up to no good as well yourself. And the New York Times report uh, showed that there's actually high-level discussions around this particular logic as well. And I quote, Participants do not hesitate to call out a challenge, pressing for the evidence behind accusations of ties to Al-Qaeda. What's an Al-Qaeda facilitator? asked one participant, illustrating the spirit of the exchanges. If I open a gate and you drive through it, am I a facilitator? And I guess, I mean, it's complicated, Andy, but what this essentially means is that we must all teach our children in the future that it is just not worth holding the door open for anyone anymore. (laughs) It's just too dangerous. That person could possibly be an insurgent. You just can't know for sure. Chivalry has essentially become aiding and abetting terrorists now. That is what you should say to your wife, Andy, when you let the door swing back and hit her in the face. I'm sorry, honey, but I need guarantees that you will renounce the global jihad. (laughs) Well, as you said, uh, the basic attitude is that people in any area of known terrorist activity are, as you say, probably up to no good. Uh, one anonymous official is quoted saying, innocent neighbours don't hitchhike rides in the back of trucks headed for the border with guns and bombs. So the basic American philosophy is, if it looks like a duck, waddles like a duck, quacks like a duck, shits on your car like a duck, and tastes <laughs> damn good with some plum sauce wrapped in a pancake, it's a f***ing <laughs> duck. And the thing next to it is probably a duck too, even if it looks like a chicken and is actually better fried up with cashew nuts and yellow bean sauce. It does suggest that Barack Obama must be an absolute nightmare when he does the family shop. So, Barack, love, did you get everything I need for my Niswa's salad? Yes, I did, Mickey Moo. I sure did. Here you go. Tin of tuna fish. Barack, that's a can of baked beans. Well, they were in the same aisle. And here's some (laughs) eggs for you to boil up. Thanks, my darling Elvis president. Oh, oh, hang on. Those aren't eggs. Those are cut crystal wine glasses. Well, they came in a box, like eggs do. And they're (laughs) eggs. With a glass stem and a round base, love. OK, Funkatron, they're shaped like girl eggs, not boy eggs. Don't suppose you bought some little potatoes for me, did you? Yes, here they are. I'll pop them straight in the bowl. Those are bullets, Barrack. Well, you can fit them in your pocket, like bullets, and fire them out of a gun, like potatoes. What are you complaining about? Has my range of accents coming on? Pretty good. I didn't three think I'd go, one there. I didn't think I'd go for the full Obama. Mm. Seemed a bit... Yeah. Uh, a little bit risky. A little risky, Andy. You I'm do a good sure one, though, don't you, John? You do, I bet you do no. a good one. Well, let's leave that as a hypothetical. <laughs> Syria update now. And uh, there are currently doctors all over the world holding up maps of Syria like x-rays, looking at them and saying, oh, shit, this does not <laughs> look good. Somebody pays the hospital chaplain. Uh, 
The Syrian town of Hula was the site of a horrendous massacre over the weekend, with more than 108 people slaughtered, including women and children. And the international community has launched into action, firing some of the most powerful words in their arsenal at the Assad regime, sparing no adjective to defend the Syrian people semantically. There seems to be very few sentences that we are not willing to deploy over there now, unless any of those sentences contain the words, we are going to physically do something about this. The international community's response to the Syria crisis thus, thus basically largely involved finger-wagging, tutting, head-shaking and issuing resolutions beginning now, seriously, mate, come on. And as a result of all the... There's been a lot of horse trading, John, about this issue. A lot of uh, horse trading. The result of that's just been one very confused horse strapped to the roof of a kebab <laughs> van outside the UN building in New York knowing, well, this could have gone a f- of a lot better than it did. <laughs> and one of the great problems is that... Uh, Syria's long-term allies and trade partners, Russia and China, are not so much dragging their feet on the issue as standing with their feet stuck in blocks of concrete, saying, if you lend me a toothbrush, I'll start chiselling this concrete off my feet, and then we can really start moving. (laughs) Hang on, who's that ringing the doorbell? Oh, it's a delivery. Great, my new concrete socks. I'll just put them on. Yeah, I wear my socks outside my shoes. Have you got a f***ing problem with that? (laughs) Kofi Annan whose Syrian peace plan is currently looking as peaky as the Himalayas right now, has vowed to investigate. Well, hold on. Vowed to investigate? Assad must be shaking in his furry tank slippers right now, Andy. (laughs) That's the best you've got. And anyway, that is a misuse of the word vow. The word vow promises much stronger action than investigations. You vow to take vengeance on someone. You vow to not rest until your enemy is dead. You don't vow to set up a committee to uncover further details of the thing that just annoyed you. You don't hear Russell Crowe during Gladiator saying, My name is Maximus Decimus Marie. Commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife. And I vow to launch a full and vigorous investigation (laughs) in this life or the next. The UN have today issued a statement saying that uh, these acts may amount to crimes against humanity. Now that word may is... It seems perhaps a bit of an Mm -hmm. understatement. I guess we shouldn't jump to conclusions. The UN, as ever, going out on a limb on this one, the limb of a baby gerbil burrowed down safely in some nice warm sawdust after having its limbs hacked off. The the horrendous truth is we're going to do absolutely nothing about this, partly because of Russia and China, but especially Russia, are are going to block any UN resolutions to take any action. Even after the Hula massacre, Russia's deputy foreign minister said it was premature for the Security Council to consider any new measures. That was after a massacre when people had their hands tied behind their backs before being stabbed to death in their own homes. To say it's premature to talk about any new measures doesn't just take balls, Andy. It takes Russian balls, which are huge painted balls with a succession of slightly smaller (laughs) balls inside them. (laughs) Hillary Clinton said the case for military intervention was growing stronger every day, saying, the Russians are telling me they don't want to see a civil war. I've been telling them their policy is going to help to contribute to a civil war. And I guess they've been telling her back, Hillary, I don't know how else to tell you this, but we don't give a shit about this, okay? Does it help to hear it like that? We don't give a shit. Stop bothering us with this shit. (laughs) Assad's team have blamed rebels for the atrocity, saying that they're trying to spark just such an international intervention before adding, 
No, is no one buying that? Ah, fair enough, but it was worth a pop, though. Still, before you do pop over to Syria to intervene, you might like to check exactly where we are on a map. You'll find us on the page marked Political Tinderbox. Good luck. So what are the options for the international community? Well, it seems that's very restricted politically. It's a delicate game of political Jenga, and you just never quite know what's going to happen. So perhaps the most important thing we can do is start to try to get inside Assad's head and try to understand what mm-hmm. makes him tick. And the world leader who's leading the way on this approach is none other than the American president himself. And well, that's good. To explain how he's doing this, I refer to an interview with People magazine that Michelle Obama, the first lady, has given, uh, in <coughs> which she uh, revealed that one of the president's songs of choice to sing to himself mm-hmm. around the house and in the shower yeah. is... LMFAO's I'm Sexy and I Know It. Oh, my God. Which, as buglers will know, is also a personal favourite of Bashir al-Assad. So It's it's catchy, Andy. It's the one thing that brings despots and presidents together. We're not as different as we think. (laughs) It's a bonding tune, isn't it? Oh, well, get out. It's... It's something that we can share. It, when they're starting to try and get negotiations together, they should. this should be their pump-up music. They're sitting around the table, play this whole song, and then say, listen, we've all got passion in our pants. We know we're not afraid to show it. <laughs> and then they can, they can all dance a bit to get the blood pumping, and then they can settle down to start talking like rational, moral human beings. Just so you know, if uh, if you know, if both Obama and Assad realise that you know they are both sexy and that they both know it, right? Then you know that is when that is you know that's like Reagan and Gorbachev coming together, isn't it, over their shared love of table tennis in the 1980s? Can we please stop playing that song? Well, is that for Chris, co- I mean, is that for copyright us... reasons or artistic? <laughs> that, that's that's one of the few I can think of. Chris, if your body doesn't automatically move when that song starts playing, <laughs> then you are medically dead inside. The convulsions count. <laughs> Britain news now, and we're all going to die for one day only. Because for the first time in 40 years, British doctors are going on strike. 21st of June, John, is going to be an extremely bad day to be ill as our doctors lay down their stethoscopes. Take a day's break from telling people to say ah, oh, making people say oh, and thinking to themselves, eh. <laughs> and I haven't fully followed the dispute, John. It's something to do with pension reforms uh, and this government reneging on the deal made with the doctors by the previous government. Uh, tinkering with a pension system that was apparently working and delivering a surplus to the Treasury. But it's the, the way the debate's been framed in public is either doctors being ludicrously selfish, given that they are already earning quite healthy pensions, or the government just being nakedly political about it. It was revealed in the independent newspaper that the last time doctors took industrial action in 1975, death rates actually fell. So this could actually be (laughs) good news for this country. And also, maybe politicians can learn from this, because doctors have been accused of putting self-interest first by going on strike. But, you know, if only politicians would do the same. In fact, they went on strike for 29 or 30 days a month, 
they might stop shitting out all the legislation that is causing so many of these problems and other strikes. So I think maybe there's something to be learned from everyone. The, uh, the British Medical Association said that uh, emergency care would still take place as doctors did not want to put patients at risk. But they then said that also the doctors reserve the right to shout, Scab! 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 at the patients whilst they are being operated on. <laughs> Scab! Forceps, please, nurse. Scab! 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 Uh, and it's in a context of the broader dispute over the NHS reforms, which have been uh, billed as the change of a lifetime. But they are the third change of a lifetime the National <laughs> Health Service has had in the last 12 years. So it turns out that the lifetime in question is that of a hamster or a Japanese television or even a hamster stuck inside a Japanese television. Personally, I don't fully understand why these reforms are necessary. You know, I've never died, so mm-hmm. I'm happy with the NHS. And I guess it's like the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But then there are other people who think the old saying should go, if it ain't broke break it and then tell everyone you've got to fix it because it's broke. Or maybe if it ain't broke, keep spending until it goes broke and then sell it. I don't know. It's a very complicated debate. All I know is that the NHS debates is very much like a negligently managed octagonal abattoir. It has many sides and is full of bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, Thank you very much. The go- <laughs> when the government came into power, they'd pledged to ring-fence NHS spending, very much in the same way that the French revolutionaries had pledged to ring-fence Marie Antoinette's neck. They'd also pledged to stop top-down reorganisations of the NHS, in the same way that the French revolutionaries had pledged to stop top-down reorganisations of Marie Antoinette. And the coalition also pledged that they would put the patient first, in the same way that the French revolutionaries... Um, uh, that put um, it's a bit of a stretch. This one uh, they put Marie Antoinette's head first into a basket. Well, that that will have to do. That will have to do. And in the efforts to make us healthier as a nation, there's been complaints that people are not really treated like human beings anymore. And uh, people saying, "Oh, you can't program patients like computers." And I would also add that conversely, computers cannot be treated like human beings. Uh, we got a new one at this time last year, and we could not get it to breastfeed for love or money. And when we tried it on the bottle, it just went f***ing mental. And do not get me started on bath time. Feature section now, Jubilee! Oh, party in the UK! It's party time, Andy. P-A-R-T. Why? Because the Queen has been on the throne for 60 f***ing years. That's f***ing why. (laughs) England is about to embark on a four-day holiday weekend to celebrate the Queen sitting on the throne for 60 years and not dying once, Andy. (laughs) Not even once. There are going to be street parties. The whole country's going to be united in celebration. And I heard rumours that we might actually firebomb Dresden again, <laughs> just to put a cherry on this jubilee cake. £424 million pounds has apparently been spent on food, drink and decorations. B&Q alone has sold 100,000 metres of Union Jack bunting. Sainsbury's alone has sold 364 miles of bunting. If the Queen's Jubilee... It's about one thing. It's about bunting, Andy. (laughs) British people have been bunting the shit out of anything that doesn't move. People have bunted babies, and rightly so, Andy, because there's no baby more beautiful than a beautifully bunted baby. Well, it's very interesting, actually, the origin of uh, bunting. It, of course, goes back to another very significant royal uh, occasion, uh, Queen Victoria, uh, Mm -hmm. when she got married 
And um, bunting is, in fact, based on her wedding night knickers and bra and Prince Albert's posing pouch, which, after a rumbustious night of newly married royal mutual congratulation and passionate de slubarage, were seen dangling from the curtain rail of a Buckingham Palace window the following, <laughs> following morning. People instantly assumed that the triangular pieces of fabric were a celebration of their happy nuptials rather than the result of the amorous rending and hurling of undergarments during the matrimonial scramble stiltering. And bunting became a standard part of all British royal celebrations, which is lucky because if they'd looked in the window on the other side of the bedroom, today's bunting would, instead of nice little triangles of material, look... Eerie like a gimp mask, whip, riding saddle, water machine gun and roast chicken. <laughs> B&Q also said that he has sold 3,100 Jubilee gnomes. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 know, I know this is hard for other world citizens to understand, but, but British people like to commemorate any event with a gnome. Who can forget the beautiful Queen Mother open gnome coffins that your gnome could lie in state <laughs> for as long as she did? So beautiful, Andy. Also, the new line of the, also the new line of Leveson Inquiry gnomes have proven very popular this year. So you can have your own parliamentary media investigation at the bottom of your garden. <laughs> So as you say, this weekend we mark 60 decades of Her Majesty staying relentlessly, unapologetically, inspirationally and most importantly, Britishly alive by firing yes. her down the Thames on a magic yes. flotilla. Pop her on a boat yes. and off she pops. It's like one of these increasingly trendy living funerals, John, where you have a send-off with your buddies whilst you're still alive. And she's doing it Viking style. She's just getting right. drift off the end of the Thames, literally in a blaze of glory. Yeah, that's the only thing that's different from her and a Viking funeral, is that she's alive and not on fire. Those are those only two differences. There are going to be huge spectators for the Thames River pageant, which will feature more than a 1,000 boats with the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh on a specially decorated royal barge. It will be decorated with the decapitated heads of 500 special Jubilee competition winners who each had to finish the sentence, I would like my decapitated head to festoon the Royal Jubilee barge because, in less than 75 words, it's going to be stunning. Yes, the much-loved non-executive ceremonial despot who has ruled this country for 60 years with a rod of wood, well, snooker goo. Well, I mean, to be honest, John, she's getting on a bit. She's 86 now, and she's in pretty good shape. She's well past the age when most people would have wanted to sell her house, put her in a home and forget about her. And by that <laughs> age, I mean five. Sorry, it's just my daughter woke me up really early this morning. <laughs> But it is a fundamental part of British identity, John, if you can probably remember from when you were British. And uh, the monarchy is an institution as British as a queue of grannies dressed as Winston Churchill in tweed wire fronts, which, when photographed in the air, is shaped like a battered sausage twitching a newspaper, all whistling the theme tune to Indiana Jones whilst doing a Morris dance on the graffitied roof of a needlessly delayed train, expressing confusion about British national identity in a rapidly changing post-imperial 21st century world, before sitting in a Taiwanese-made plastic replica of Stevenson's rocket, dropping apples on our heads, simultaneously patting a dog and telling it to f*** off, raucously downing a pint of cheap Indian tea straight from a Union Jack mug, whilst watching some pe people sing songs we all know really well on the telly quite shitly before crying about something, then silently weeping into an old leather football at the oh. nagging sense that our best days are behind us. That's what this country's all about, John! England's green and pleasant God land. save the qu uh, qu Oh, no, this one, hang on, five letters. Uh, qu blank e e blank uh, I think it's an anagram of Queen. Queen, God save the Queen. God save the Queen. 
And in case anyone is worried whether there'll be a Buckingham Palace balcony appearance or not, relax, there will. She's not going to f***ing blue ball the country, Andy. <laughs> the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh and other members of the royal family are going to appear on the palace balcony to watch an RAF fly past. Uh, there will then apparently be a foie de joie, fire of joy, a celebratory cascade of rifle fire given as a salute by the Queen's Guard from the forecourt. The Queen will then, as is tradition, pull out a shoulder-mounted rocket launcher and attempt to shoot one of the planes down. If she is successful, the country will be given an extra day off work. And then, of course, Andy, to close the Jubilee celebrations down, the Queen will appear once more on the royal balcony, holding a stereo above her head to lead the country as one in a dance to her favourite song. I'm sexy and I know it. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of London as one. With the Queen backing her royal behind up on the balcony. I've got passion in my pants and one is not afraid to show it. I am sexy and I know it. What? Girl, look at that body. One works out. Apparently, uh, that's what um, Princess Anne had as the first dance at her wedding back in the 70s. She was a princess ahead of her time. <laughs> been a lot of uh, complaints, John, about the cost of the uh, Jubilee. So, was it £424 trillion, pounds, was it? I think you uh, mm-hmm. quoted it as. Well, just think of the cost of the alternative to the monarchy. This is always the complaint about the cost of the monarchy. If there was an alternative, if there was a President Blair, for example, the entire current cost of the monarchy would not even start to cover the cost of cleaning the graffiti off the front of Buckingham Palace every morning. <laughs> wow, those are some big letters. Four very big letters. Right, Brian, <laughs> you start at the C, I'll start at the T, and we'll meet in the middle for lunch. <laughs> Still, I guess technically he does come from Scotland, so he is a Celt. <clears throat> oh, it says <laughs> Sorry, my mistake. <laughs> But in many ways, the Queen's setting a very bad example by living so long, uh, 60 years on the throne. Frankly, too many. I mean, they say you should stay 10 years, a job, 10 years in a job and then move on. And she stayed uh, six times that amount. And partially it is our fault. We do keep asking God to save her. And we had the same problem with uh, her mother, the Queen Mother, who just refused to die. And in fact, in the end, had to fake her own death and is now living in Vegas with a Puerto Rican, Rican dancer called Jorge. <laughs> And there is a great deal of genuine excitement here, and part of it is unquestionably, you know, a respect for the Queen, who's managed to not be an elected politician for six decades now, but also due to the fact that the Jubilee is involved giving everyone an extra bank holiday. And this, John, is the way to this nation's heart. We saw it last year with the Royal Wedding, and in fact, you know, if Brenda and Paul Snouted from Birmingham were to get married in Birmingham Registry Office and just announce to the country that everyone can have a day off work. They would have half a million people lying in the streets <laughs> shouting, you f***ing heroes. And if, if, if Hitler in 1940 had simply said, I'm going to give you all three extra bank holidays a year, we'd have been waving the Luftwaffe down, saying, there you go, pop your little Messerschmitt down there and we'll put the kettle on. But it's interesting that patriotism is a slightly awkward thing in this country. Uh, it's not something that we're mm. as comfortable with as uh, Americans are. Samuel Johnson, the 18th century words whiz, Uh, wrote that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel, which suggests, A, that scoundrels have a very ill-honed survival instinct, 
prancing around waving flags, wearing silly national costumes and singing loud but simplistic ditties about your country, not the most secretive of refuges. Uh, I'd also suggest B, scoundrels probably love sport, and see that this nation is currently awash with scoundrels, unless patriotism is also one of the first refuges of people who just like a bit of old-fashioned pomp and distraction from the general shitstorm engulfing the world. And to conclude the Bugle Jubilee special, some Queen facts. The Queen has not broken wind since 1951. She is a qualified electrician, a skill that she learnt in the war, and before her coronation in 1953, she wired up her crown to flash on and off when she officially became Queen. The Queen owns ten decoy queens that are used to distract Uh royal correspondents so she can privately indulge in her private hobbies, such as golf, pub quizzes, erotic jigsaws and swearobics. And 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 to the side and 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 back to the and and this is why tonight's bugle is late. Andy, Andy, I think you might have just written your Citizen Kane. However, despite this, the last time the Queen is known to have sworn in public is when Diego Maradona scored his famous Hand of God goal in the 1986 World Cup quarter-final between England and Argentina. Her exact words were, Oh, fuck it, the cheating little shits. I had two grand on Jorge Burushaga to be the first goal scorer. The Queen invented the sport of corgi surfing inadvertently during a Buckingham Palace garden party in 1963. And also, when talking to the Queen, you're not allowed to refer to her as Lizzie, Betsy, Mrs. The Second, Queenie, Mate, Darling, Honeybunch, or Sugar Cheeks, unless you use the full official term, Your Royal Sugar Cheeks. Other things you should not say to the Queen include, You're not my real mum, You are my real mum, I've had the blood test back, now give me a cuddle and a crown and tell me how, how many of those soldiers I'm allowed to take. Uh, you're not allowed to say, You look sensational, oh mercy. <laughs> Also, you should try and avoid saying, pull my finger, or shit everyone, she's got a fucking sword and she's waggling it over that guy's <laughs> neck. Take her down. Take her down. And nor should you say, where's the crappy? Imagine that corgi carpaccio has gone through me like a medieval sword. <laughs> what, was I not supposed to eat it? Oh, well, well, I wasn't going to complain, but the chef had left rather a lot of fur on it. I did like the way it wiggled in your mouth, though. Very nouveau. Was that Blumenthal did that? Was it Blumenthal? <laughs> And the final Queen fact is the Queen is a regular Bugle listener and her favourite episode was Bugle 69 (laughs) featuring the penis on the roof story. (laughs) Your emails now and uh, we had a fantastic email from Robert Wolfson who simply said it was mentioned on the last podcast and I thought I would make it happen. Rob London. And he attached the image... Of a photo of the Queen, Andy, with the Olympic rings tattooed onto her forehead. (laughs) A clear violation of the IOC copyright rules. So it will be on the Bugle Twitter feed until the IOC or the Palace get in touch and tell us to take it down. So you're going to want to look at it early. The Queen with the Olympic rings on her forehead. It's where the Olympics and the Jubilee meet. There'll be more of your emails next week. Do keep them coming in to info at thebuglepodcast.com. And don't forget, you can listen to The Bugle not only on thebuglepodcast.com, but also on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash the hyphen bugle. Wow. Wow. I reckon I could get, I could be a DJ, like an afternoon radio DJ. It's a a weird situation, Andy, when competence becomes somehow disappointing. (laughs) 
Well, that's all in the greatest week for humanity since the beginning of time. The... <laughs> well, that's us done. That is us done. <laughs> I think we should probably leave it at that. I've got to go and do a gig in Milton Keynes. Oh, that's I've what got, that I've got, I've, for. Yeah, after the, one of the Jubilees died down, uh, you can come and see me in yeah. uh, Portsmouth at the Eastney Cellars mm-hmm. on Sunday evening. And there's some more tour dates coming up. The details will be on the buglepodcast.com website. There's was no that your final Mil- way to commemorate <laughs> the Queen being not dead than that. Was that your Milton Keynes wrist alarm, Andy? Is that like the bat <laughs> signal, but from Milton Keynes? It was, yeah. Goodbye, buglers. Goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth, Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss Lime Bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.